is that guy yelling? Sorry about that. <laughs> Guys, we're excited. I'm excited about Easter. Easter is three weeks from this weekend. Mark your calendar. We're doing something unique. When you got in, I'll talk about this in a second. You got this little card on your seats. We are doing five services across more than just a weekend. We're going to do something we've never done before. We're going to do a Thursday service. That's at 630. That's for anyone who wants to come. But especially, here's what we found. Over the last, we're only six years old. Over the last five or six years, there are certain people who've really never been able to be part of an Easter service with us because they go and visit, well, they're young couples, so they go and visit the in-laws or, or our college students. We've got dozens, and, well, really about 150 college students, and uh, they always go home to visit their parents. And so we wanted to celebrate Easter with our young couples and our college students, anyone who can make Thursday night. And then we've got Saturday night service. And if you can come Saturday night and serve Sunday, that would be huge. We are anticipating uh, record crowds, record people coming. And, and let me just be real personal for a second. When it comes to Easter and Christmas, it is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest sermon that I write each year, right? Right, there's certain people, we call them, we love them, but we call them CEOs, Christmas, Easter only. They come only on those two times, right? And they always complain, I don't go to church because every time I do, they only talk about the virgin birth and the resurrection. It's like, those are the two Sundays you come, okay? So <laughs> what I'm gonna be doing is I'm gonna be talking about the resurrection, but I just wanna let you know ahead of time so you can be praying for me and for us and know what you're inviting your friends to. I promise to be on my best behavior. Here's what we're gonna be talking about. Uh, Luke 24, verse five. So it's very interesting. It's when the angels asked the first disciples at the empty tomb a question, that I think is very relevant for today. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Or why are you looking for life in places that only lead to death? Or maybe the most positive way to say it, why are you looking for the right things in the wrong places? So we gave you a card. Uh, that's just for you to invite one person. If you wanna get more cards, invite more people, you can stop at the welcome tent. But here's what we know about Easter. Uh, there are three times when a person who otherwise would not come to church will come to church. Let me give you those three times. The first time is when life's not going well for them. Now, we never know when that's gonna be. But some of you, that's why you're here. It's like my marriage fell apart or my kid's breaking my heart or I'm stressed out or I experienced tragedy. And usually when those, right, what does C.S. Lewis say? God whispers in our pleasures, speaks to us every day, uses a megaphone in our pain. So that, that's, that, we never know when that's gonna happen. We have relationships with people and then when the chance opens up, we say, maybe this would be a good time for you to come to church. The other two times, our Christmas and Easter. People come at Christmas because it gives them all the holiday feels. People come at Easter because they feel like if I'm ever gonna go to church, I'm gonna go to church when everybody goes to church. And so here, here's what we would ask. Uh, here's how relationships work. Um, you know this, but it's kind of like a bank account. You make lots of deposits in a relationship so at the right time, you can make a withdrawal. It'll be up to you who you would wanna invite and if it'd be the right time. We never wanted to be a church that said, please invite your friends. We wanted to create an environment. Hopefully we're like, this is, changing my life and my family's life, and I'd like to bring other people into it. In preparation for our prayer night, let me just tell you that tomorrow night, if you can make it, it's gonna be really special. We're gonna be doing our first night of prayer and worship. Donovan and his team are gonna be leading us in worship. I'm gonna be leading us in an extended time of prayer together, and we're really gonna be, one, we're gonna be celebrating all that God's done so far this year together, as well as we're gonna be praying for our church and for our city as we head toward Easter and head into the new building. So let me pray for us, and then we are gonna be, if you can type two, turn two, we're gonna be in jo uh, Joshua chapter nine for the rest of the morning. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we are thankful that we still live in a time where, uh, especially Christmas and Easter, people in our lives, uh, maybe who we would be surprised, are willing to come to church. Uh, I read a study recently that said 51% of Americans said if they were sincerely invited by a friend, they would try church. And so sometimes we're more afraid to ask people. And so Lord, I, I, we know that Christianity is primarily a go and tell faith. 
we go and tell into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces, but we also know that as we're going and telling, every once in a while, it's time to have a come and see. Come and see my family. Come and see my Christian friends. Come and see my church. Well, would you give us a winsome personality and uh, in a wise way to invite those who are far from God and close to us to their next come and see? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you know when you're being deceived? I guess you don't, right? I mean, the definition of if you know you're being deceived, you're not being deceived. Uh, what's interesting about being deceived is when you're deceived, it feels in the moment the exact same as being told the truth. It's only an hour later or days later or sometimes years later that you realize you've been deceived. Today in Joshua chapter 9, if you'll type there, turn there, we're going to see God's people are deceived. Now, there's Joshua. There's not many bad things said about Joshua. He's one of the guys in the Bible It's like, man... For the most part, great guy. Uh, he has two defeats. We looked at the first one. We're not going to go back there. That was the defeated AI. That was spiritual pride. That was secret sin. The other thing that defeats him is deception. And I, I just felt like we've got to talk about this for a whole morning because uh, deception's a big deal. I mean, think about Satan. Satan, he has many names in the Bible, Lucifer, the accuser of the brother, as well as the deceiver. In fact, the first time Satan shows up, what does he show up as? A crafty serpent who tells us lies. Yeah, the New Testament says that Satan shows up as a roaring lion seeking those who devour, but I think in America, he mostly shows up as the crafty, deceiving serpent. So here's where we're going. Here's the big idea for this sermon and for this text. We need to understand how we're deceived and we need to cultivate discernment. Discernment, uh, John MacArthur, maybe you've heard of him. He's 82 years old, still pastoring in California. His diagnosis of the American church is the American church's greatest problem is a lack of discernment. Discernment is the unique ability. It's really the spiritual ability because we have the Holy Spirit inside us and because we have God's word, we're able to know the difference. Here's what discernment is. I know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, truth and lies. And do we ever need this more than now in an information overload society? Do you remember during COVID all the information and misinformation and disinformation? And the, I'm not even talking on different, it doesn't matter what side you were on because everybody switched sides and the side said different things at different times. And did any of you bleach your groceries? No, I'm just you know, <laughs> We had people who did that. How about false advertising? Maybe that, that, that's more every day, right? You, on your social media account or on television or wherever you're watching something, we get all this false advertising. And you kind of feel like, am I being deceived? Like I got this advertisement for these like little things you put on your stomach that shock you to give you six pack abs. <laughs> Has anyone else seen these? And I literally, I, I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. And I also thought, I might buy this. <laughs> I, I didn't buy it, but I literally, I was like, I, it's not that expensive. I could try it. The guy eats potato chips and has six packs. Uh, then on a very serious, you know, uh, on a serious note, there's a lot of political propaganda, uh, which is when the when the state lies to you, and that's a very old story in human history. If you go back and you read the Nazis and the story of the Nazis, and you look and just Google Nazi propaganda, Google Soviet Union propaganda, and you'll see how the government will lie to you at times and tell you the exact opposite of what's happening. For example, in North Korea, it's called the People's Republic of North Korea. If it's one thing, it's not. It's the People's Republic of anything, okay? So on a serious note, and by the way, some of this sermon will be offensive. The rest of it will be very offensive, okay? No. Uh, 
But you think about right now, I mean, right now, I'll give you just the only two examples I can think of, but they're just so prevalent. Right now, abortion is talked about as a woman's reproductive right. It's not talked about the innocent killing of an unborn baby. Right now, a 16-year-old girl, healthy, will get a double mastectomy because she thinks she's a boy, and we'll call it the Orwellian phrase, gender affirmation surgery. It's like, how could you call, you couldn't call it more the opposite of what it is. This is why people believe in conspiracy theories. You ever wonder, like, why your grandmother's posting about conspiracy theories on her Facebook page? Or your aunt? Conspiracy theories are very interesting. I heard a guy say, do you want to know why Americans believe conspiracy theories? Two words, Jeffrey Epstein. The fact that that guy existed and he was friends with celebrities, and he had a private plane, and he had a private island, and he killed himself while the cameras weren't working. We have so much information. We're trying to figure out what's true, what's lies, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. I want us to look today at the story of Joshua and learn some lessons about how we're deceived, so hopefully we can not be deceived, and how we can cultivate discernment. Turn with me to verse 1. I'll show you this. This is kind of intro. Here we go. Joshua 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings, okay, not some, all, all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the uh, Termites, the Electrolytes, and the Parasites, yeah, just kidding, no, a lot of ites. They gathered together as one. That's important too. Look at verse two. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So I'm not a doomsday person, but I want you to realize the kings represent the enemies of God's people. And what often unites God, uh, a lot of people is their hatred towards God's people. Um, we live in a time, it's very interesting. We live in a time, I don't know exactly when this changed. They, they say that you know, up until about 1990, uh, the view of the average American toward Christianity was positive. It had to do with basically our morality and the morality of the culture were similar enough. There was a the haunting of the Judeo-Christian kind of worldview that there was a lot of agreement. And so they viewed Christianity as positive. There was a time in our nation, long, long time ago, when if you were going to get a mortgage on your house, you had to show that you were a member of a church or a synagogue. But then somewhere, we don't know exactly when, somewhere around the 2000s, uh, late 90s, 2000s, uh, there became more of a, we call it a neutral view toward Christianity. Take it, leave it. I don't care what you believe, but just don't bother us. And, and then now, since about 2010, there's been more of a negative view. And, and I think here's what happens, because you'll see if you read like the New York Times and different things like that and these opinion articles about Christianity, they'll always say the same thing, which is kind of scary because I'm like, who came up with this and why is everybody quoting everybody? They'll say that something like this about Christians. Their faith should just be in their homes and their hearts. What the world doesn't, the world doesn't mind personal, private faith. The world minds public faith. And when the world gets most angry at Christians is over two things, our ethics and our evangelism. Anytime we say, actually, this is what God has said about this area, that's when they get upset. Or when we say, actually, we have a message that's for everybody and we, we believe in conversion. We believe in personal repentance. So I want you to see at the beginning, what happens is these five empires, little empires, they come together to fight against God's people. 
That's kind of the intro. Now we're going to be introduced to the Gibeonites. And let me just tell you what happens because it gets a little confusing. The Gibeonites, we'll see in a minute, they only live 10 miles away. But they're going to dress and act and talk like they live really far away. They're going to, this, is, this, this passage is called the Gibeonite deception. The Gibeonites are going to come in and they are going to deceive God's people, particularly by deceiving their leaders. And then almost immediately after they're deceived, and this is, well, sometimes you find out you're deceived years later. That's really painful. A lot of times you find out shortly after you've been deceived, like I was just deceived. They figure that out. And then the third thing is they have to live and learn from their deception. So I'll show you all this here. Let's look at verse three. Um, Verse three says this. Uh, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, so that's who we're gonna talk about the rest of the time, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, so heard about the victory of God's people, they on their part acted with cunning, craftiness. And they went and made ready provisions and took, look at this, worn out, that word will be used four times, worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet. Look at this, and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. Now we may not understand this because today we think it's cool to wear worn out clothes. It's like, look, I got holes in my jeans. These are vintage. Uh, Back then, if you wore worn out clothes, people thought, oh, those are old. Okay, that's what people used to think. And so what they're doing is they're dressing in such a way to look, though they're 10 miles away, they're trying to deceive God's people and look like they're from very far away. Look what it says, verse six. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about how we're deceived. This is very simple, but most simple things are are true. We just need to embrace them. The first thing is we tend to be deceived by appearances. Now we can be deceived by the, the degree somebody has the position they hold, the way they dress. I mean, how famous, remember the story, uh, the famous movie that came out about 20 years ago, Catch Me If You Can? Frank Abagnale Jr., what an amazing story. What a profound and fascinating story. Where somehow, just by the way he would dress, he was also smart, but by the way he would dress and the confidence he had, he impersonated a pilot, yikes, (laughs) a lawyer, and a doctor. It's really a fascinating story, but it shows you the power of people to believe appearances. Well, I, I think for us in the church today, often what happens is we, we tend to believe, well, you wonder, well, how do all of these nice Christians end up listening to these false teachers? I, I think part of it is we, we think that false teachers are going to have small horns coming out of their head, <laughs> and they're going to be very mean. Most small uh, false teachers, they're very nice, they smile a lot, and they just ask a lot of questions of the Bible and give no answers. What I want to do is I want to talk, so if, we're, if we are deceived by appearances, uh, how does that work? I want to kind of go one level deeper with us, and I'm going to give us some big phrases, but I think they are helpful. Uh, three reasons, as people who've studied just in general, not just Christians, why are people deceived? Because we all know this too, certain people are more deceived than others, right? Certain people are a little bit more gullible. Did you know they took gullible out of the dictionary? If you believe that, you're gullible. Okay, that was a test. <laughs> Still in the dictionary. Um, there are certain people who are a little bit more gullible, who are a little bit more naive, but let me tell you three reasons why people tend to be deceived. Okay, these are big phrases, but the, the first is what's called confirmation bias. It's that we are most likely to continue to believe what we already believe, obviously. Or we're most likely to believe what we wanna believe in a situation. So in this situation, we don't know for sure. I'm imagining a little bit. Maybe Joshua and the guys didn't wanna fight another battle right now. So maybe the best thing that they would wanna believe, we don't know this for sure, is that, man, this is great. 
We've got friends in the area. Well, they live far away. This is a battle we won't have to fight. We can enter into covenant with them. This is the idea. Confirmation bias is the reason. Well, let me even go back one, one level lower under this. It's like basically what happens is whenever your beliefs are challenged. So what your beliefs do is your beliefs, not just Christians, anyone's beliefs. Part of what they do is it, they regulate your emotional state. So as soon as you find out you're wrong about something, it's like, oh, how wrong am I? And how long have I been wrong? And what else am I wrong about? We don't like to feel that, right? This is why people live. They choose to live in areas with people who believe the exact same things as them. This is why, right, if, you're more, if you lean more left politically, you'll feel very comfortable in Ardmore. Or you'll feel very comfortable in West End. And if you lean right politically, you'll feel very comfortable in Clemens. Or in Louisville. Or on the other side of the river in Davie County. We don't like to be around people who believe the opposite of us because it makes us have to rethink our beliefs and are they really, really true? I'll give you a real practical example. This is why a parent who just believes has a confirmation bias that their kid could never do anything wrong. Have you ever met that parent? It's very hard to talk to them. The teacher tries to tell the parent, this is how your child's, at. oh my, no, little Johnny would never. It's Johnny does. <laughs> Confirmation bias is our, is, 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 it's the whole idea that we see life through a lens and we are looking for things to affirm what we already believe. I saw this event where a guy said, uh, he, he was talking to a, a leader and he said to the leader, they were doing kind of a Q&A, he said, I just found out my spouse is cheating on me. What should I do? And the guy I thought was so wise, he said, he, he was well, talked back to the guy, he said, well, let's be honest, did you just find out? Or have there been signs for months or maybe even years, but you didn't want to see it? Part of the reason we're deceived is there's certain things we don't want to see. Secondly, that's confirmation bias. Secondly, emotional vulnerability. The more emotionally unstable you are at any given time, the more likely you are to be deceived during that time. This is why if you ever, some of you have been a part of these programs, if you've ever been a part of anything like Alcoholics Anonymous or any anonymous recovery group, uh, they, one of the things they teach you very early on is the acronym HALT which is just a good acronym for all of us to know, and struggling with any sin, stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And basically, and this is great advice, what they tell people is, hey, listen, <laughs> no matter how many alcohol-free days you've had, no matter how long you've done it, don't ever think you couldn't find yourself in a situation where you believe the lies again. And that happens, and they kind of go together. If you're hungry and you're angry, here's what happens. A lot of times if somebody gets out of a relationship, Sometimes it's a divorce, God forbid. Sometimes it's just that you had a really serious relationship for a couple of years and it didn't work out and you broke up. Usually both people, I'm not speaking this over anyone, or one of those people becomes unbelievably emotionally vulnerable. They start dating someone they never would. They start doing things they never, they start drinking more than they, they become unbelievably emotionally vulnerable and we're more tempted in that moment to believe lies. The third is very simple. It's just a lack of information. So here's kind of the, 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 the triad or the trinity. If you have a confirmation to already believe something, it's gonna be easier to deceive you in that area. 
if you're also emotionally vulnerable, and then third, if you know very little about that area, right? This is, this is basic truth. It's like, you and I are most likely to be deceived in an area we know the least about. So this is why, I mean, pray for my wife. She married the least handy person ever. I mean, I know nothing about any of this stuff, you know? So anytime I take my car to the shop, I'm always like, I like to act like I know what I'm doing. I'm like, yep, just, you know, just get that oil change, you know? <laughs> and rotate those tires while you're doing it, you know? That's all I know. But they can come back to me. They're like, all right, you need a new flux capacitor. I'm like, I, I guess we need it. It's $1,000. We, we've all felt that the contractor comes over, it's like, what should this cost? And we're usually trying to call somebody else to figure out because in an area we know little about, we're most likely to get deceived. Well, let's see how the story continues. Here's what it says. Look at verse seven. We get the kind of first thought that maybe they realize something's off. It says this, but the men of Israel, this is the leadership, Joshua and the leaders, said to the Hivites, and look at this, you can see, right, in the text that they, they have a feeling something may not be right. Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? I wanna give you the first principle of discernment, which is listen to your gut. God has given us a gut. Every human has kind of that gut. But when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit who lives in us and who leads us. And a friend of mine calls this the God pause. Something's happening and you're like, I just need to pause about this. And I just need to listen to my God. I'm not, you know, I would never ask anyone to stand and share this, but I bet a lot of us in here, if we look back over some area of our life where we really fell into some sin or got into some unhealthy relationship or ended down a path, we're like, how did I get here, right? And the answer to how did I get here is always one step at a time. But, but if we look back, oftentimes, if we're really, and it's hard to be this honest with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll say something like, man, I knew on date two that he wasn't or she wasn't right for me. Like, I just, I could feel it. Th this is why whenever I do premarital counseling, I always, and I learned this from the guy who did my premarital counseling, our premarital counseling, the first question I ask after like, great to meet you, what are your names, tell me your testimonies, uh, you know, tell me a little about your family. The, the first question I was always taught to ask is, hey, do either of your parents, have either of your parents expressed any concerns about this relationship? It's the gut question. It's like, even if they're not Christian, like mom and dad usually have a unique gut. And let me just encourage parents. Now, some parents, I can't say everything to every parent, some parents are bomb shelter mentality, they're too protective of their kids, but I wanna encourage parents as well to just lean in. You have the, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll just not feel good about something and that's okay. You don't even have to tell the whole story to everybody. You might just be like, no, I don't feel good about my kids sleeping over their house. I don't know why. My grandma used to say, some people just give you the heebie-jeebies, okay? <laughs> I know you're not allowed to say that today, right? You're not, that, that's not being judgmental, that's judging. That, that's wisdom, that's discernment. So the first thing they don't do is they don't check their gut. Let, let me ask you, where do you not have peace? Don't make progress if you don't have peace. And we can talk about how you get peace. You go to the scriptures, you talk to others in community. But so many of us, here's another way to talk about this real quickly. Don't go against your conscience. It's the same thing, I'm just trying to give us don't go against that. Your, your conscience is, I've talked about this before, but your conscience 
is the last internal line of defense God gives you. And so the conscience is a very interesting thing. Romans 14 talks about the conscience. And basically, here's the whole teaching of a conscience in a sentence. Never go against your conscience, even if, if the Bible says you can do something. If your conscience says don't do it, don't do it. There may be an area, this happens a lot of times, where the Bible says, oh, you're free to do this. Alcohol is a great example. We know all the, you know, Jesus drank, and we know the, you know, in moderation, and we know all the Christian kind of summary of why it's okay to drink in moderation. But there are some people who go, I just can't. Because I've seen what it's done to my family, and though the Bible allows it, I cannot go against my conscience. Because if you go against your conscience, it's like lying to your spouse. The first time you do it, it's hard. The second time you do it, it's a little easier, and then it becomes natural. And if you wake up one day and you're the kind of person who can just do a bunch of things and your conscience is what the New Testament says is seared, that's not a great place to be. So let's continue on. So here's what happens. The first thing they're deceived by is words, or sorry, is, is uh, appearance. The second thing they're deceived by is words. Look at verse eight. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. So that sounds good. They tell them what they wanna hear. That's confirmation bias. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said, from a, from a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord. For we heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. I mean, give these guys the Academy Award. <laughs> they deserve an Oscar. Look at this. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Now, they're very smart because uh, news did not travel very far back then, or very quickly, I should say. And so you'll notice they don't mention the battle at Jericho. They don't mention the battle at Ai. Why? Because if they mentioned those two battles, they would give it away that they live nearby. They mention these far away battles in Egypt. And here's the second thing. I'm particularly speaking to Christians. How are we deceived by words? We tend, Christians tend to be deceived anytime anyone talks about God. And I think it's just because we so badly want people to believe and we, we, we're, we're sheep. Christians are sheep. We want to assume the best of people. So any politician who mentions God, we get excited. Any celebrity who mentions God, we get super excited. This week, I had like three different people send me that Jim Carrey. Did anyone else see this? So I guess Jim Carrey, I don't know anything about it, except that Jim Carrey was speaking somewhere, and he said something that was like, hey, listen, guys, we just need to forgive each other like Jesus forgave us. And multiple people were texting me, is Jim Carrey a Christian? I don't know. I got excited too for a minute, you know? Some of us, people are like, he's a Christian. He said, God bless you. It's like, you sneezed, okay? <laughs> I don't know if he's godly. I think he's polite. The temptation for us is anytime someone starts to talk about God, I've seen young women be duped by this before. They meet a guy who says he believes in God and he'll go to church. And that's enough because she so badly wants to believe that he's a Christian and then she finds herself in a very painful and unequally yoked marriage. Well, with the time left, I wanna show us how to cultivate discernment. But before I do that, I wanna stop for a minute and I wanna talk about what are some of the lies we believe. I'm gonna give us a category of lies we believe in culture and lies we believe in the church just quickly because I think it's helpful. I, and I spent all week thinking what are the unique lies? Because every generation, every nation has the lies that it believes. So I'm gonna give you a few lies that we believe in culture today. 
that most people believe and are deceived by, and a few lies that we believe in the church. Uh, the first in the culture, the, the number one lie in the culture today is that tolerance is the highest value and highest virtue. So tolerance used to mean, I disagree with you, but I'll put up with you. I disagree with you, but I'll fight for your right to be able to say what you believe. Fair enough. Tolerance now means I approve, I affirm, I celebrate. And this, this by the way, is everywhere. Anywhere you see diversity, inclusivity, and equity signs. That's the language of the new tolerance. See, here's, let me explain what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the highest value isn't tolerance. The highest value is truth. The Bible, the culture believes the most important thing is my rights. Everything's about my rights, and I just keep needing more of them, and more and more people need to understand my rights. The Bible says, actually, it's not as much about your rights as it's about repentance. And so we live in a culture right now that people think the most mature person is the most tolerant person, and what they mean by that is can put up with the most goofy and strange things and act like they're normal. That is the most mature person in a tolerant culture. The second lie that we believe is that love equals love. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers? We define something by itself. Now, obviously, the Bible has a huge value for love. God is love. But we have um, a very therapeutic view of love in this society, that, that love is a feeling. It may be a romantic feeling. We, we have no, so, so there are three things about love in the Bible. Love is allegiance, action, and affection. It's all of those. So you can think about a wedding. That's the perfect example of love. I stand up in front of everyone and I make an allegiance. And I tell you all the actions I'm going to do because of the affections I feel. That's love. We live in a society that thinks love is a feeling. That's how you can fall out of love. That even language, we fell out of love. Okay, so it's kind of out of your control. Or we think that love is, uh, if I love you, I will make you feel good. Have you ever gotten in a fight with your spouse and your spouse said, you're not being very loving right now? Well, you might not be very, being very loving, so you need to check that. Or you might have just told him or her the truth and that didn't feel loving in the moment. But here's what a great definition of love. I'm committed to your highest good. So you can, you, your conscience can be clean and you can sleep well if you're like, that was a really hard conversation, but I, I've checked my heart. What I was trying to do is I was trying to be committed to their highest good in that conversation, which sometimes means you have to upset present spouse because you love future spouse. And there's a lot more future spouse than present spouse. And you have to tell him or her something hard, in the, or your son or your daughter, in the moment because you love who they're going to be in the future and you care about that. The third lie, and this is a huge one, and I'm not trying to pick this fight, this is a fight the culture is bringing toward us, is that your sexual identity is the most important thing about you. Um, adolescents have, for all of human history, been confused about sexuality. We're not doing them any favor in telling them that it's the most important thing about them. Which, by the way, if you just think about it, this is how deception works. If you think about it for a minute, you're like, wait a second, hold on, I just need to think about this. It's not logical because here's what the society's telling us. It's telling us two things that can't be true at the same time. Your sexuality is the most important thing about you, dot, dot, dot. And if you don't like it, you can change it. Do you see how they both can't be true? 
Your sexuality is paramount. And you can be non-binary the next day. The truth is sexuality is a component of our lives and humans for all of human history have struggled to figure out how to integrate their sexuality into the rest of their life. That's been a struggle for everybody. And we're to bring our sexuality under the lordship of Christ and ask him to help us with our sexual brokenness and our sexually disordered desires. The fourth lie our culture believes is that you will find the most happiness in your career. This is particularly a lie that's told to everybody, but young women are believing this more and more and more because it's young women who are in college. It's young women who are are really excelling in medicine and law school and all those things. And Praise the Lord for all that. But I think the lie we believe is somehow I'm going to find this unbelievable career. All I need to do is get to the best schools and get into the best companies. and, And somehow if I make whatever it is and I'm in this company and I have this position, I'm going to be happy. Here's the truth. Most people don't have fulfilling careers. They get jobs. And a job is something you wouldn't do if someone wasn't paying you. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I got one of those. That's what, most of us are like, that's what I have, you know. And so it's helpful. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I have a, you know, not trying to make this about me. I have a, I cannot believe what I get to do for a living. I have an unbelievably fulfilling career. But it's not nearly as exciting as my family. My brother and I were talking about a golf trip we're hoping to do this summer. I'm like, I'm so excited. I have one brother. Your family of origin, your marriage and your kids, if God gives it to you, is going to be, your relationship with God is going, your friendships are going to be way more rewarding. And I'm watching a generation give up on all of those things for their careers. And I'm just preparing to have a bunch of upset 40 and 50 year olds who are brokenhearted by all the lies of the culture. And we're, gonna, we're not gonna say we told you so. We're gonna love them and minister to them when they come back to church. And the fifth lie that the culture believes is that this life is the only life we get. Which, you know, why does everybody, we're not against travel, why does everybody wanna travel? Why does no one wanna get married or have kids? It's like, well, I have seven or eight decades and I need to go to Europe again. And I need to live in 15 different cities. It's like, why? Because this is the only life I have. If this is the only life you have, YOLO, as they say, right? You only live once. Christians believe in YOLT. You only live twice. Here in heaven. Um, But you, you lose the values of service and you lose the value of sacrifice and you lose the values of generosity and you lose the value of delay delaying something if you believe I have to get everything right here. Those are, as I can tell, the big lies in the, in the culture. I'll give you just a couple lies in the church. The lies in the church are more the same as they've always been. I'll just give you three of them. Uh, one lie in the church is what's called legalism. And, it, and that's a big word. Basically, it means that Christians tend to believe that somehow God loves them more when they obey. Maybe here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the truth. The, uh, we, we relate to God by grace. And on your best day, you still need God's grace. And on your worst day, you're not out of reach of God's grace. And that's what we live in. And there are some days you're, you might be tempted to think, I don't need God's grace. God, God's very lucky to have me on his team. 
And there are other days where you'll have completely blown it and you got caught or your sin found you out and you'll feel or you disappointed someone and you'll feel like you're outside of God's grace. Those are both lies. You're never outside of the grace of God and you never don't need the grace of God. The second lie we believe is on the opposite side of the church. It's not legalism, it's license. These are always the two sides. Right, right, I think I told you before, uh, Martin Luther said that the Christian is like a drunk man on his horse. He falls off one side, he gets back on the horse, and he falls off the other side. License is basically, it doesn't matter how I live, which is, I think, even maybe more of a temptation for the younger generation in the church. Kevin DeYoung, who is a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, a well-known pastor, he, uh, he said he thinks the one thing missing from young Christianity, Christianity under 40, is holiness. We're very excited about church planting. We're very excited about world missions. We're very excited about social activism. We're not very passionate about our personal holiness and that it matters and makes a difference. The truth is your personal holiness is one of the greatest gifts you can give to anyone you're in relationship with. Third lie in the church is, and I think this is maybe the most pervasive lie, that somehow everybody's going to be okay. This is what we call functional universalism. Now, I know we would say up here, no, we believe in heaven and hell. It's like, well, do you think anyone's going to hell? I think so often we don't, we're losing an intensity and an urgency and the necessity of evangelism because we just think, we give lip service to, yeah, we've got lost people and we want to reach them, but we kind of think at the end of the day, they'll be okay. Everybody, you know, right, aren't they going to just have like a deathbed conversion moment? And yeah, she's a good nominal Catholic. She probably knows the Lord. And we want to we kick, kick him in the kingdom. Yeah, I'm sure dad, you know, I know he doesn't read the Bible. I know I've never seen any life changed in him. But I think he'll be okay. It's like there needs to be an urgency. I think Satan is deceiving us. Everybody isn't okay. It doesn't go well for everyone forever. And as Christians, there should be a necessity and an urgency to our evangelism. So those are the lies. Let me show you how we can not be deceived now. I showed you the first thing with the gut. Let me show you the rest of it. If you, if you look at me at verse 11, here's what it says. So the elders and all the inhabitants of the country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread, it is still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not, here's the key verse in the whole chapter. You can see it. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. So we see they're deceived and then they find out that they're deceived. Let, let me give you four more things quickly that'll help you and I not be deceived. They're very simple. You know what I'm gonna say probably before I say them, but let me just give it to you. The first thing you need if you're not gonna be deceived is time. 
Do you notice that the Gibeonites didn't want to give him time? Hey, you need to make a decision. In fact, we find out that it's three days later. That's all it is. You're like, three days? So if they would have waited three days, if they would have said, give us a few days to think and pray about this and decide whether or not we're going to enter this covenant with you, if they had three more days, they would have found out the Gibeonites were lying to them. Where do you need to, and I know it's different based on your life stage and based on your schedule and based on your work, when do you and where do you need to get away if you're married with your spouse and say, there's a couple things we need to work, get, stop working in and start working on and working above? Here's what I find, that when, you, you may say, I don't have time, Kyle. I don't have time to get away and really think about my kids or our marriage or where we're headed or our finances. Here's what I found. Uh, people don't think they have time. But have you ever met the family that has like a very, very rebellious son or daughter? All of a sudden, they find time. Doesn't matter how busy they are. It's like they found time. They were able to get away. He was able to not travel as much. But sometimes it's on, it's on the back end. It's when things have already happened. It would be much better to go, we need to get away. Here's a principle for my life. If somebody in this, if you're in leadership, I'm sure this happens to many of you too, people come to you all the time with ideas and requests. And my, if anyone pushes on me for something, I say, if you need to know now, the answer is no. It's a great thing to tell your kids as well. Okay? <laughs> but it's very, it's very, very helpful. If you need to know, I learned that from somebody else. If you need to know now, the answer is no. If you'll give me some time, I'd love to pray about this. I'd love to get to a maybe. I'd love to get to a slow yes. I'd love to get to a third way. But if you need to know now, the answer is no. Here's a principle for life. Time is the enemy of options. That's just, the more time you have, the more options you have, obviously. The less time you have, the less options you have. First thing is time, and that creates the space for everything else. The second thing is prayer, right? You know I'm going to say these things. It's like a force them to say prayer. It says they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. I think our main way that we show our pridefulness is our lack of prayerfulness. Um, most of us have been raised well enough that we're not going to be hopefully overtly arrogant and prideful. But the main way our pridefulness shows up is a lack of prayerfulness. So what in your life, here's a helpful question, what in your life do you not just need to think about, you need to pray about? I find there's a big difference between thinking about your marriage and praying about your marriage. Thinking about your kids and praying about your kids. Thinking about your finances and praying about your finances. Thinking about your future and career, praying about your future and your career. It does something like it, it, it brings you God consciousness in a new way. It invites God into the situation. And here's the key, when you're making, this is so hard to do, I don't even know exactly how to do this. It's more of an existential feeling. But when you're praying about a decision, uh, someone told me this years ago that 90% of prayer when it comes to decision-making is getting neutral, right? You already know what you want to do, what you don't want to do. It doesn't mean that's the right thing. So much of prayer is, Lord, get me to the place. I might need to fast. I might need to search the scriptures. I might need to confess things. But get me to the place where I am neutral, and from there you can lead Third is you need to know what the Bible says. Remember I said lack of information? You're going to be tempted most and most likely to be deceived where you know the Bible least. And so let me just encourage you. I mean, there are certain areas. This would be a time to really understand what the Bible says about personal identity. Um, this is, it's not optional as a Christian to not understand what the Bible says about identity in a, in a season where everybody's confused about their identity. This would be a great time to, to buy a book on the Bible and study biblical manhood and womanhood, male and female, sexuality and gender, singleness and marriage. These are topics that you want to know. And finally, you need Christian community. 
These are all the things you know I was going to say, right? We all know these things already. With Christian community, you need maybe one or two people in your life who you can ask this question to and they would be honest. Do you see me believing any lies? And if you would ask that, that's a dangerous question to ask and try not to get too defensive. I mean, speak your piece. If you know, if you're like, I disagree, then tell them you disagree with what they're saying. But do you see anywhere where I might be believing lies? And they may say, well, to be honest with you, if you'll let me say something, yeah, here's what I think. I think you're believing the lie that work is gonna satisfy you. Or I think you're believing the lie that the more you have, the happier you'll be. The principle of Christian community is we cannot see ourselves by ourselves. And so we need other people to help us see what we have been unable or unwilling to see. So we're easily deceived. We talked about that. Gave some principles of how we practice discernment. Now, let me just show you what you do when you figure out you've been deceived. We'll close here. If you'll, if you'll turn with me to uh, verse 17, it says this. And the people of Israel set out and reached the cities on the third day. And they mentioned those cities in verse 17, verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a whole nother sermon in here about keeping your word even when it's hard, but that's not what we're gonna talk about right now. So it's this, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. See, when you believe lies, it affects those under you. And so sometimes we don't even see them do this. I'll show you, they do, do one good thing. But sometimes if you've been deceived, the best thing you could do is tell the people that it's affected, I'm sorry. You, you tell your kids, I'm really, really sorry. I have believed that I have created a culture of materialism and consumerism in this home. And I just want to repent of that. And I don't want you guys to grow up and think that the more you have in your hands, the happier you're going to be in your heart. And so I'm sorry, dads believe that lie. That's the best thing you can do when you've been deceived. Just go, I, I have to say it out loud. I've been deceived. I'm sorry for how it's affected you. You meant, I'm sorry, I've been drinking way too much. And it's affected our whole family. And I've not been present. And I'm sorry, I believe the lie of alcohol. Let me just tell you that. That's what, that's what they're, they, they're actually not doing that. That's what we should do. They do do something helpful. They say how they're gonna fix it. Look at verse 19. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord God, the God of Israel, look at this, and now we may not touch them. I'll explain that. That's the language of defilement. Because God's main warning, by the way, was if you bring these other people in and you intermarry, their gods will become your gods. You'll have syncretism. Syncretism is where you try to combine a bunch of religions together. And he warned them of that. So they said, don't worry, we're not gonna touch them. Look, he said this. This we will do to them. Look, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. Look at this. This is wise. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So in other words, what they're going to do is they're saying, okay, these Gibeonites, we're not gonna let them influence us. We are going to influence them and we're gonna put them in the tabernacle because when they're in the tabernacle, they're gonna be around the Levitical priests, so they'll be around God's people. They're gonna be around the word of God and they're gonna be around the spirit of God and those are the things that God uses to change people. And the crazy story about the Gibeonites is they show up 45 more times in the Old Testament. Always spoken of positively. It's one of those confusing things again. We're like, wait a second, God said to kill all the people in this area. They get deceived, they enter into a covenant. They honor the covenant. God ends up working through all of that mess and the Gibeonites become part of God's people. 
We said this before, but God can hit a straight shot with broken sticks. Praise the Lord. I think what you know, the, the right place to end a sermon on deception or a text on deception is to talk about truth. You know, truth is central. When Jesus Christ came and testified to Pontius Pilate in John 18, and they said, "Why?" Are, Pilate asked him, "Why are you here?" His answer is, "I was born to testify to the truth." Right? For Jesus, truth was such a big idea that he says in John 14, 6, that famous verse, he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Truth is such an important concept that Jesus identifies himself with it. And here's what he says. This is a very famous statement that people don't even know Jesus is the one who said it. He said, the truth, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But here's the, here's the truth about that. It might also make you miserable first. <laughs> and I think a lot of times we believe lies is because we don't want to know the truth. You know, I mean... Maybe that's a question for you. Do you really want to know the truth about yourself? Do you really, are you really open to knowing where you're being deceived? It's kind of a strange thing to quote Nietzsche, but Nietzsche, though he was an adamant atheist, he really understood the human condition. And one of the things that Nietzsche said is he said, you can tell the character of a man or woman by how much truth they can handle. Can you handle the truth about the struggles you're having with sin? Can you tell yourself the truth? Can you tell yourself the truth? This is where our marriage is. Are you willing to embrace the truth about your kids if it's hard? See, there are, we talked about church lies, we talked about cultural lies. I wanna end just for a moment talking about something called a demonic lie. I was introduced to this concept about a month ago and uh, a guy introduced it to me. He said, a demonic lie is a lie that has a will with it. It, it kind of keeps coming and, and, and every individual person has different lies that just, it's the lie that won't die. And the guy was telling me about it. He said, what I've had to do is I had to write down, he said, I identified seven specific lies I believe are demonic in my life. And he said, one of them was that no matter how much money I make, I would be happier if I made more money. He said, I had to write that lie down. I had to get it really specific. What is it? Why do I believe this? He said, and then I had to search the Bible and I needed to find truth and promises as compelling and as specific as that lie. So what I wanna do is I just wanna, if you'll close your eyes and pray with me, I just wanna give you a moment. Maybe this is just the beginning of something for you to think, where are you believing lies? It's easy to pick on the culture and say, here's the culture lies. It's easy to pick on the church and say, here's what the church has believed. What have we believed? Most likely people believe lies all the time. If they're single, they believe they'd be happier if they're married. Sometimes if people are married, they believe they'd be happier if they were single. People believe they'd be happier if they had more money. People believe they'd be happier if they were more sexually free, whatever that means. Lord, would you just give us the ability to diagnose our own hearts and to welcome community into our life? Lord, would you give us, as we learned today, would you give us peace? Would you not let us move forward if we don't have peace in an area? Would you give us passages so we know our Bible? Would you give us people? Would you turn us to prayer, Lord? And would you make us a people who we want to know the truth so it will set us free, even if it's painful and makes us miserable first? We ask all this in Jesus' name.